Hello and welcome to the In Context podcast with me, Gregor Thompson. This is episode 25, and today I'm joined by Dr. Craig, or Craig Heller, depending on where you're from. He is professor of biology at Stanford University and world expert on the science of temperature regulation. We discuss the benefits of ice baths and cold showers, and Dr. Heller explains the difference between hyperthermia and hypothermia and the best ways to offset both of them. He also describes how cooling technology that was discovered and engineered in his lab led to dramatic performance improvements of athletes and how it can also eliminate delayed onset muscle soreness. This is all techniques that we can use in our own lives, whether we are cooling whilst working out to improve our performance or just cooling our core body temperature. It can also be applied to sleep, it can make you sleep better, it can make you um, ice baths and cold showers can make you feel better throughout the day. This is definitely a conversation to listen to and I definitely recommend applying some of these techniques to your own life. It definitely is worth it. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you quickly about the sponsor of the podcast. So this episode is brought to you by the Struggle for Meaning newsletter. This is a weekly newsletter in which I send out every Sunday for free a short article concerning embracing struggle. If you're struggling to be more productive, to be healthy, to achieve your dreams, perhaps you've been chasing the wrong thing. A lot of us believe that we should be aiming for happiness, but this to me is an unwise pursuit as happiness comes and goes without any control from us. But there is one constant in life that we rarely admit, and that is struggle, suffering, pain. And the best way to feel fulfilled is to bear that responsibility of struggle, is to embrace it, is to volunteer yourself to it. That's the way to be more fulfilled in life. It's the reason why we feel good after exercising, because it's a struggle to exercise. It's a struggle to eat healthy, but we feel good when we do. We feel good after we've had an uncomfortable conversation, but it's definitely a struggle to have it. So that's why I created the newsletter. Along with the article, I also provide tips, strategies, and recommendations to help you along the way. To sign up again for free, go to gregorthompson.com. The link will be in the show notes. You just need to confirm your subscription and make sure you check your spam folder for your welcome newsletter. If you add me to your contacts, you will receive it every week in your inbox for free. And that's it. Once you've subscribed, you're on your way to struggling more and being more productive, healthy, and motivated. And lastly, this is the last piece of housekeeping before we get into the conversation, I promise. If you want to stay up to date with everything concerning the In Context podcast, the Struggle for Meaning newsletter, and to see some clips from the podcast, you can follow my social media channels. My Instagram is Gregor S. Thompson, all one word. My Facebook page is Gregor Thompson journalist. And you can watch the podcast on my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. All of this will be linked in the show notes to make it easier for you. So please click them, subscribe to all my social media channels and my YouTube page. It's genuinely very much appreciated. And it's the best way you can support the podcast. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can follow and subscribe there. That would genuinely be very much appreciated. But now I kept you waiting long enough. Here's my conversation with Dr. Craig Heller. Just start with you perhaps introducing yourself and maybe talking a little bit about what you do at Stanford. Okay, sure. Well, um, hello everyone. I'm Craig Heller. I'm a professor of biology at Stanford University. Uh, so I teach undergraduates physiology. Uh, part of my own research is in the neurobiology of sleep and circadian rhythms. So I teach a course in sleep and circadian rhythms. Uh, 
And within that research, I have a specialty in uh, learning, learning in memory, the role of sleep and circadian rhythms in learning in memory. And I, uh, in that work, focuses a lot at present on Down syndrome and whether or not we can improve the abilities of individuals with Down syndrome uh, to form long-term memories and to use that information. And then the other half of my work is in human physiology, and that has to do with the effect of temperature on performance. And uh, in that work, we have, uh, I think, done the remarkable thing of discovered a major adaptation that hadn't been appreciated before, and that is that certain surfaces of our body are have evolved in mammals specifically to dump heat, to reduce the heat load on the body and therefore to uh, lower body temperature. Uh, and we've exploited that uh, to develop a technology to amplify that heat extraction. And what we discovered is that uh, by extracting the heat from the body, performance is enhanced, uh, endurance is improved, uh, strength is in, in, in improved, uh, and we get huge uh, physical conditioning effects. So those are the areas of my research. I involve a lot of undergraduates in, in the work, uh, and uh, we basically have a good time. <laughs> and in terms of temperature regulation, is that, evolutionary speaking, was that so that we could survive, basically, so that we could run faster, so that we could um, hunt better. Do you think that has an impact in what our human physiology in terms of temperature regulation? Well, this goes beyond humans. Uh, this goes to all mammals. And if you think about mammals, their distinguishing feature is they have fur. We don't have fur, but we have inherited the same structures that all other mammals have that have fur. So if you have fur, it's kind of difficult to dump heat. It'd be sort of like uh, keeping a fur coat on and trying to put a cold compresses on the outside of the fur coat and uh, expect to lose heat. So mammals have evolved special circulatory adaptations uh, on the non-hairy skin. Uh, that's called the, uh, the uh, glabrous skin. And blood vessels under these particular surface areas, which in general for mammals are the pads of the feet, in some cases, the, the face in primates, uh, the ears in rabbits, for example, the tongues in carnivores, um, these special blood vessels can accept huge volumes of blood. And the blood is what carries the heat to the body surface. And that makes these surface areas specifically uh, good at dumping heat to the environment. So we don't have fur, but we've been, as I said, we've inherited these same adaptations. So when you shake someone's hand, you know right away what their thermal status is. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to tell that if you touch their shoulder or their forearm, but it's the glabrous skin, uh, which is the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet, and the upper part of the face. Uh, if you go to the gym, you'll see people with very red faces. <laughs> and, and if you look closely, you'll see, even for women, uh, that uh, that redness sort of ends at what for a man would be the beard line. And that's the difference between the glabrous and the non-glabrous skin. Is that why, um, just unfortunately to relate, to relate this to COVID, is that perhaps why when 
we used to go into restaurants, they would take your temperature on your forehead. Is that the most reliable place to take someone's core temperature? Well, it's not the most reliable, but it's easily accessible. Sure. I don't think they would like people to have things stuck in their mouths, <laughs> stuck in their ears. So the forehead uh, is close to the brain and the brain is a highly metabolic organ. It has lots of blood flow. And most people don't have a lot of fat on the forehead. So it's not a part of the body that's well insulated. Mm. So, yeah. So that's why they, they're looking for fever, of course. So one thing I've started doing recently, and um, this was after having a conversation with one of your colleagues, actually, at Stanford, um, Anna Lemke. Um, and so I read her book, Dopamine Nation. And so she, she spoke about a client she, well, not client, um, someone she was treating for addiction. And he beat that addiction through ice baths, ice plunges. And he ended up getting very, very passionate about that. So he-, he, he I'm sorry. Sorry, um, is that better? Yeah, no, no, just say what, uh, maybe I just didn't understand the word. Sorry, um, so the person she was treating um, for addiction ended up beating the addiction through ice baths he okay. because of the effects on dopamine so when he got into the ice bath his dopamine spiked and there, there's a, I've, I've read a lot of research about the fact that dopamine spikes almost as much as the dopamine would spike if you used cocaine and that dopamine stays the same for about three hours after getting out of the ice bath which is just remarkable. And so that, that's why I started using ice baths. I started basically emptying a bag of ice into the bathtub and getting in for about 10 minutes and then getting out. So what happens physiologically when we get into ice baths? Well, um, lots of things. Mm, of course. <laughs> One of the things that it does, and this is the same with what's now called cryotherapy, uh, what happens is you get an activation of your sympathetic nervous system. And there's lots of interactions between the nervous system and uh, hormonal systems. So you're going to get a shot of adrenaline <laughs> and uh, there's cascade effects. So uh, dopamine uh, secreting neurons or releasing neurons are responding uh, to the excitation, to the activation uh, of the uh, of the sympathetic nervous system. So yeah, people go into cryotherapy and they come out and they say, wow, I really feel different. I really feel alerted and I feel uh, energetic uh, and therefore this must really work. Well, what it is, is they've just got a big shot of adrenaline. <laughs> so you are gonna feel different after you've got a shot of adrenaline, what it's, whether it's because all of a sudden you almost stepped on a rattlesnake or because you've been exposed to a very, very low temperature. Is that why it's probably best to um, do an ice bath early in the day rather than at night? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I really couldn't say what's best. Uh, certainly, if you have trouble waking up in the morning, <laughs> that's going to help. You know, splash of cold water on the face is a traditional way of waking up. So sure. Uh, I don't know whether that's better uh, for any particular treatment, but uh, it certainly is arousing. Now, there are people who use ice baths for treating hyperthermia, 
So athletes, for example, um, uh, if they uh, are suffering from borderline heat stroke, one of the first uh, line treatments is to put them in a cold water bath. So unfortunately, cold water baths are not always readily available. So the technology we have, which extracts heat from the body, is a first line uh, treatment for individuals that are suffering from hyperthermia. And then athletes also use cold water baths to decrease inflammation. So, uh, you know, if you have a, a sprain, uh, you're going to put ice packs on it. And what that does is it decreases the inflammation, uh, which will lead to soreness if it is allowed to uh, continue to, to increase. And so, if someone has a uh, sprain or, or an injury, is it better to use heat or cold? Well, uh, it's better to use cold to block right. the, uh, but what some people recommend, uh, and I, I, I can't, I don't know any evidence necessarily that is for or against this, and that's alternating heat and cold. And the idea there is that the cold will help to limit the inflammation but the alternation between heating and cooling will assist bringing blood into the area, which uh, will help uh, perhaps the healing. But in general, cool, cold is, is better for treating uh, inflammation of joints, muscles, and so forth. Hmm. So you mentioned they're treating hyperthermia. Um, I suppose my first question is, I don't actually know the difference between hyperthermia and hypothermia. Well, um, hypothermia is low. So hypo mm -hmm. is if you all of a sudden get lost in the wilderness in a snow bit, snow drift, uh, you're going to become hypothermic. Hypo means low. And hyper, uh, you can sort of emphasize the er <laughs> to remember the difference. Uh, hyperthermia is going above normal body temperature. And, and what's important to realize is that we live we live on the thermal edge of existence. In other words, the thermal edge of life. So we run at about 37 degrees centigrade and uh, 39 degrees is beginning to get you into trouble and 40, 41 degrees can have serious consequences. So even though a slight rise in temperature promotes increased efficiency so for example, uh, if you have very cold muscles, you're not gonna be able to run very fast. Uh, so that's why athletes warm up before competitions. The limbs are not at the same temperature as the core of your body if you're resting. They're at a lower temperature unless you're in a very hot environment. So by doing a warm up exercise, the muscles are at a slightly higher temperature and that's more optimal for efficient function. But if you go too far above that 37 degrees, if you get up to in the realm of 39 and 40 degrees, then you rapidly decrease the efficiency of those muscles uh, due to metabolic limitation. It's, it's sort of like a fail safe. Uh, you literally have the capacity to cook your own muscles. Uh, the, in, in heavy exercise, the temperature of large dynamic muscles goes up considerably. And the only way that heat gets out of the muscle is in the blood. So you may increase the metabolism of those muscles by 50 or 60 fold during anaerobic exercise like weightlifting. 
but the blood flow can't go up 50 or 60 fold. So the muscle heats up way above the rest of the body. And uh, to prevent that, we have a fail-safe system. Uh, the fail-safe shuts off the energy supply to the muscle when it reaches 39, 40 degrees. So if you're doing, let's say, pull-ups, all of a sudden you get to the point where you can't do one more. You can try as hard as you can, but you can't do one more rep. And that's because you have shut off the supply of fuel to those muscles. So what we've found is that if you extract that heat, you take that heat out, then the muscle can keep on working. So you can go back and do the same set over again. Why do you think it's like, I've only just came across that for, for cooling the body is through your palm, is best through your palms and the soles of your feet and your um, forehead. And I only just discovered that through listening to you. Why do you think that's not common knowledge? Well, I don't know what if you go back, uh, let's say 40, 50 years, uh, there was a lot of work done on the effects of heat on distribution of blood in the body. Mm. Uh, these were some papers by a scientist by the name of Rowell. And what he showed is that if you just have a human sitting in the heat, uh, their cardiac output will go up tremendously, you know, maybe four or five fold cardiac output. Well, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, I can't, but it's, let's just say it's a big increase in cardiac output. So where does that blood go? And then he used various techniques that they had then for looking at the distribution of blood in the body. It doesn't go to the organs, that blood flow goes down. It doesn't go to the muscle substantially, that blood flow goes down. And the one, temper the one site that he measured was the forearm. And he showed that the forearm blood flow went way up, way up. But it was clear that the skin temperature didn't go way up. So where was that blood going? And he couldn't decide, uh, he couldn't determine where it was, but he speculated that it was going to the hands. And that's what we've found that in the hands, you have these special blood vessels that can, so, so normally blood goes from arteries to capillaries to veins. Capillaries are the tiny little vessels that exchange oxygen and nutrients. And they are high resistance vessels because they're small. So in the glabrous skin, the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet and the face, you have shunts that when they open up, the blood can go directly from the arteries to the veins. And the veins in those areas are arranged in big networks, like uh, they're called a plexus. So they're literally radiators. So when you're overheated, you can send the arterial blood directly into these radiators rather than into the capillaries. And that's where the heat then is, is dumped to the environment. So going back to ice baths, do yeah. they have any physiological benefits with regards to muscle recovery? Um, or like you mentioned that it does increase performance by cooling the body during a workout, but does doing an ice bath perhaps after a workout, what effect does that have? It, it decreases what's called delayed onset muscle soreness. Uh, and it de decreases just uh, local inflammation, such as joints, 
uh, knees, ankles, elbows. So the ice bath uh, helps uh, help, helps decrease the inflammation and and therefore increase the healing that's necessary. Because what happens during heavy exercise is you develop little muscle tears. Uh, and that's what leads to delayed onset muscle soreness because those little tears uh, have uh, the effect of producing local inflammation. So if you can prevent uh, that inflammatory response, you're going to eliminate that next day soreness. And you've done, you've done work with professional athletes. What's, what's the most surprising finding you've found um, when cooling core body temperature during athletes' workouts? Well, <clears throat> quite amazing. Mm -hmm. So, as I told you, uh, you reach a point when you're doing any particular exercise where you can't do one more rep, okay? Uh, and what we found with professional athletes that we've worked with, we asked them to pick an activity they're good at, something they like to do, Maybe it's pull-ups, maybe it's dips, maybe it's push-ups, whatever. And you have them do a workout in which they will do multiple sets to muscle failure and then rest for three minutes, you know, do another set, rest for three minutes, do another set. And from one day to the next, one day without cooling, one the next day with cooling, we can uh, increase their capacity, their work volume, by 50 to 100%. So uh, we've had, for example, let me give you one example, an NFL football player um, who, of course, peak physical condition, you know, for a, for a professional football player. So this particular gentleman came into the lab and we asked him, what is he good? What, are you, what exercise do you like to do? He said, dips, he can do a lot of dips. He said, I'll do 40 dips in my first set. Uh, second set will be down and third and fourth will be down and I'll be able to do five sets. That's my usual capacity for a workout. So he came in and that's exactly what he did. And then the next day or two days later, he came in and between these sets, we cooled him and he doubled, doubled the number of dips he was able to do. And then for the next month, he came in twice a week for this kind of a workout and by the end of that month, he had tripled his capacity. So here you're taking a professional athlete who's at peak physical performance and tripling what they can do. That's quite remarkable, really remarkable. And I suppose it's something that people can use in their own lives if they're doing a workout in the gym or something like that. They could just, I don't know, go in perhaps with a ice cold bottle or a can or something like that? That won't work. And oh, okay, go on then. Reasons why it won't work. One mm -hmm. is it's too cold. Right, okay. You have a local reflex that if you put your hands in ice water, uh, they will, vaso those, those, uh, those shunts will constrict, they will shut down. Okay. Uh, and that's to protect us from excess heat loss. The other reason is that if you have a, let's say a frozen water bottle, uh, your natural inclination will be to grip it, okay? So when you have a water glass handy, 
grip the water glass and look at your hand through the water glass. And what you see is the palm turns white because what you've done is you've shut off the blood flow through those vessels. So uh, one of the things that we found is that for our heat exchange surfaces, we don't use something that the individual, that the user can grip. We use something right. where they can lay their hand over it gently, like something like the, 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 uh, the, the circumference of a, of a, let's say, a soccer ball. Okay, uh, And that you can't grip. <laughs> At least most of us can't grip a soccer ball. <laughs> so it prevents you from decreasing that critical blood flow. And so with this technology, um, what stages are we at at the moment with that becoming available to the general public? Well, it is available, but limited. Um, it's currently in beta testing in about, uh, currently about 500 users. Uh, some are professional athletes, some are firefighters, some are military, um, and some are just you know, interested weekend warriors. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to try it out. Uh, we have our next batch of a thousand arriving this week and they will be distributed. There, there's currently uh, more orders than that that are uh, waiting. Um, and of course, we're going to keep continue to improve it. Uh, our, first, uh, our first iteration of the technology was quite some time ago, about 15 years ago. And uh, that company, unfortunately, did not really continue to improve the technology. So we've started a new effort, and the new effort has produced a uh, much better device, much less expensive, uh, and uh, more robust. So that's what's available now. You can check it out on the web. It's uh, coolmit.com, so C-O-O-L-M-I-T-T.com. And that'll give you an idea of some of the results that we've obtained, uh, some of the experiments we've done, as well as how you can use the technology. I'm trying to think in my head what a, a household item that could be used until it does become available. I'm thinking maybe maybe like an, an ice pack, but you don't necessarily grip it. You just maybe hover, almost hover your hand over it. Would that, would that be useful? Well, uh, yeah, or you can do it intermittently. Right, so okay. You, if you put your hand over an ice pack, uh, you will cool that skin and eventually you'll shut off the blood flow. Uh, but then if you take your hand off, the blood flow will continue. Another, another way is just using uh, tap water. In, in, right. in, unless you're living in a very hot place, the tap water uh, is pretty much in the appropriate range, which will accept quite a bit of heat, but not cold enough mm -hmm. to ca cause the vasoconstriction. Mm. What I found surprising when I first did an ice bath, because I wasn't very um, optimistic that I would be able to stay in very long, um, was that Ooh. I was able to stay in for the full 10 minutes. And the worst part of it was... I thought psychological because it was the two minutes while I was waiting on the, the bath to fill up that that was my brain telling me that I shouldn't do it. But then when I actually got into the ice bath and just kind of settled and didn't move, it was easy. It was a lot easier than I thought it would be. So I'm just, I'm curious why, why was it 
easier for me if I was just staying still. I did find if I moved a little bit, it would make it worse. Well, there's a physical reason for that, that mm -hmm. if you're still, uh, you develop a boundary layer. So the water, which is in contact with your surface, it warms up. So it's right. like an insulating layer. And then when you move, you disrupt mm -hmm. that insulation. And once again, you have the colder water in contact with your skin. So uh, sure. Uh, we, we've done uh, experiments with ice baths just for scientific reasons, and we find that uh, if we warm the hands, uh, there's no shivering in the ice bath. And the person can stay in the ice bath for quite some time. Now, here's the interesting thing. They get out of the ice bath, <laughs> and in just about a minute, they will start shivering violently. And the reason is that while you're in the ice bath, the peripheral tissues of your body, you know, your legs, your arms, and so forth, uh, they have become very cold. But your blood flow is being restricted to the core of your body to protect your, the temperature of your internal organs, your heart, the lung, the liver, the brain. So what happens when you get out is all of a sudden that, that core blood start circulating out into the peripheral tissues and comes back cold. And all of a sudden you get this cold shot uh, in the core of your body and you are shivering violently. Mm. For anyone that's listening that maybe wants to try an ice bath, um, is there practices that people should be aware of to prevent maybe unwanted consequences? I suppose, is, is, is there... Is there a negative effect if you perhaps do say an hour of weight training and then go straight into the ice bath or should there be a period in between those two where you maybe let your body cool down a bit before you get into the ice bath? Well, I, I really can't give you any definitive information on that. All I can say mm -hmm. is going into an ice bath is a shock. So someone who has a weak heart or is has some form of heart disease I should not should, should not do that. They should avoid uh, any sort of shock uh, that all of a sudden will pump up your heart. Uh, mm -hmm. so of course, if you're most athletes are not going to have that problem. Uh, they're young younger people and in good shape and have strong hearts. Mm -hmm. So that that's the only caveat that I I could think of at the moment. Mm -hmm. you know, that it's not a good idea to cool down rapidly or to heat up rapidly, but uh, we haven't seen any uh, adverse effects. Mm -hmm. And is there a time in which staying in the ice bath will won't produce any better results physiologically for recovery? Um, you know, it, the, as long as you're in the ice bath, you're going to continue to lose heat. So mm -hmm. there will come a time when uh, hypothermia is is a problem. You, you, you know, your body will protect the core to to the extent that's possible, but you mm -hmm. eventually reach a point at which the core temperature will be falling, and uh, that 
is uh, not immediately a danger, but it is a danger in the long run. I mean, your heart slows down, your cognition slows down. Um, uh, so it, it's not a good idea to drive uh, yourself into uh, deep hypothermia or significant hypothermia. Mm -hmm. So what you're, what you're aiming for in the ice bath is to get that cooling of the peripheral tissues, that cooling of the ankle, the knee, the elbow, the shoulder. But if you mm -hmm. are in that ice bath too long, you're going to start lowering the temperature of your heart, your brain, your liver, liver your lungs. And uh, that, that you want to avoid. Um, and also some research I've been looking at regarding the effects mentally of ice baths show that any longer than 10 minutes, the effects on dopamine will not increase any further. So when you get to the 10 minute mark, it just kind of plateaus and you're not getting any better effects mentally. Um, speaking of mentally, how does cold exposure affect cognitive function? Well, cold exposure is alerting, but hypothermia blunts cognition, just like hyperthermia destroys uh, cognition. So by the time you get to about 39 degrees, uh, you're not thinking straight. Uh, so you, you can prove that to yourself. Uh, you can do a hard workout so that you actually become hyperthermic, and then you try to do some simple mental math, you can't do it. <laughs> you just can't do it. <laughs> and you return to normal body temperature, close to normal, and you know, that ability comes back. So I often wonder in uh, competitive athletic events, uh, whether or not you start seeing more penalties towards the end of the game and whether that's the effect of the players just not thinking straight that they know damn well that if they do X, Y, or Z, they're going to call a penalty, but they do it anyway. And <laughs> mm. um, I have a, this is a silly question, but I, I'm wondering where, if there's any truth in it. So the, in the movie, um, The Dark, no, not The Dark Knight, um, Batman Begins, Christian Bale is in the middle of what looks like the Arctic, very, very cold, and he's just falling through the ice. And he's now sitting with Liam Neeson and he's, he's um, hugging his chest and rubbing his chest like that. And Liam Neeson tells him to rub his arms and says his chest will take care of him, care of itself. Is there any truth in that? Well, uh, the chest is mainly influenced by the blood in the core of the body. And sure, that's where you're sequestering heat when you're really cold. Now, why massaging the arms would help uh, other than to perhaps promote the blood flow. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you put pressure on a vein, uh, you can move blood back towards the heart. You can't uh, move blood in the opposite direction. So by increasing the blood flow, maybe that has an effect. I, I don't know, but the, 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 bad, the downside of that is you're returning that cold blood to the core of the body and therefore decreasing your, uh, your heat content. So, so I, I don't know. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> well, it does, yeah, it's good for a movie. <laughs> Actually, we did an experiment once with uh, 
uh, a, a Marine. And uh, this, this uh, gentleman was uh, the head of the Marine Corps fitness program. And, you know, Marines are very good at uh, being acclimated to cold and to heat. Uh, the famous BUDS training for, uh, for U.S. Marines is spending lots of time in cold water. So uh, this uh, Marine, uh, first of all, he went through a uh, sort of a, an obstacle course. Okay, so it meant going over a wall, uh, walking a beam, crawling under uh, barbed wire, and coming out the other side with his gun and shooting three potential assailants. Now, this was, of course, no uh, uh, blanks, uh, uh, laser guns. And then we put him in this big tank of water and filled it with ice. And we thought that uh, what would happen is his core temperature would start going down right away. It, it did exactly the opposite. For the longest time, his core temperature went up because his shivering, his his uh, isometric tension of his muscles was producing so much heat. So he's you know, like this, and all of that muscle tension is producing heat. So his temperature took a long time to start to fall. Eventually, it did fall, and then he came out of the ice bath, and he did the same obstacle course and had exactly the same performance. <laughs> he wasn't affected by the hypothermia uh, right. due to severe training mm -hmm. so, yeah but i think you know the rubbing the arms what that might be doing is essentially just producing heat because you're using uh muscle work uh to mm -hmm. do that mm -hmm. i'm just thinking if the... you rub the chest there's not mm -hmm. much muscle there no uh, i'm just thinking with that the experiment you did with the marine and um, that probably wouldn't yield the same results with um a non-marine. I'm, I'm assuming that was because he was climatized to the, the cold. Yeah. And he knows how to deal with it, what the best strategy is, which you mm -hmm. were referring to. Mm. Um, you've spoken before about the effect of um, brown fat. So I wondered if you could tell me what brown fat is and how it relates um, to cold, how it, how it changes with regards to cold. Right. Brown fat is uh, fat but it's fat that has as its function the production of heat. So the brown fat cells have lots of mitochondria, which are the little furnaces in our cells, which produce energy. So the unique thing about the brown fat is the brown fat can metabolize fuel, can burn the fuel without having to do work. So, you know, our muscles, if we're doing work, they produce a lot of heat, but the muscle, if you're not doing anything, the muscle isn't producing heat other than at a very basal level. But the brown fat, when it's activated, it is just burning fuel to produce heat. So in animals that are exposed to cold, uh, and for example, hibernating animals, they may have pads of brown fat around critical organs like the heart for example, and in the area where blood is flowing to the brain so that they can actually maintain uh, under cold stress, they can maintain the temperature of the critical, these critical organs. Now, uh, humans were thought not to have brown fat other than as infants, newborns, but now it's recognized that the reason 
we thought humans didn't have brown fat is that in humans, the brown fat is dispersed, it's distributed. It's not in discrete pads of tissue. Okay. And there's now a belief that indeed, uh, individuals which have more brown fat are the individuals that you think of as being able to eat and eat and eat and not gain weight. And individuals with less of this dispersed brown fat tissue uh, uh, are individuals who frequently complain about being cold and uh, they even look at food and they will put on, put on weight. So. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, animals there. So if, and you, I, I've heard that you've done experiments with dogs as well with regards to cold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. So um, I've seen these things for dogs and they're, they're almost like dog beds. So the whole, the whole surface is cold and it's to help dogs with, to deal with the heat. Is that good for dogs or is it primarily just the paws people should be focused on? No, uh, you, you, you can lose heat over any body surface. Okay. It's just that the paws for the dog uh, are sites where you can maximize the heat either the heat delivery or the heat extraction. So what we've done is we've developed uh, pads for the paws of dogs to be used in the veterinary clinic so that when they're doing surgery, it's possible to maintain the temperature of the dog by putting heat in through its paws. Similarly, for exercising dogs, we've uh, worked on military uh, dogs, bomb sniffing dogs, and those dogs, uh, if they're exposed to the heat, which they frequently were, where they were being used, uh, they're panting, of course. That's their major way of losing heat. But if a dog is panting, it's not sniffing. <laughs> so if you have a bomb sniffing dog, when it comes to a stop, because there's something of interest there, you want it not to pant, but you want it to sniff. So by extracting the heat, uh, and helping the dog maintain a normal body temperature so the panting is less uh, extreme, uh, you can improve not only its survivability in the heat, but also its uh, capacity to do its job. Wow, that's incredible. Um, and you've, you've done work with um, charity workers with the Ebola crisis. I believe it was it was cooling their body while they were wearing the big sort of hazmat suits. Is that right? Well, uh, that's sort of right. <laughs> but I say sort of, what got us interested in that was emails we got from uh, Ebola workers in uh, uh, where they were from. Uh, I forget exactly which country uh, they were from. Uh, and uh, they said, we've read about what you've done with athletes. Can't you do something for us? And they explained the conditions. Uh, so we did. We, put, we built a system and we tested it out in the lab. We had our students uh, working in the heat on treadmills and, and uh, showed that we could greatly extend their work capacity in the heat. Uh, and we sent a couple of these suits to uh, Sierra Leone. Um, we, we never heard back. We don't know if those suits ever got to their location or not, but we've continued to work on that problem uh, so that we now have a prototype wearable system 
And we're just waiting for the opportunity to be able to develop it into a viable product that could be used uh, by emergency workers. We're, uh, possibly, you know, bomb squad would be uh, an obvious application. You know, the, the Michelin men dressed in the, uh, in the highly protective padded bomb suits, but also just firefighters, you know, yep. in turnout gear. So, mm -hmm. And what happens when, say, I'm drinking something very cold and my brain, or my, maybe not my brain, but you always say it's a brain freeze, your head gets extremely sore and it's horrible. What is happening there? Why does our, why does our body do that? <laughs> well, that's a, good, uh, that's a good question. And I must say, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I would imagine that it has something to do with a uh, neural reflex, and perhaps that neural reflex is altering the blood flow uh, to the brain, uh, which could create uh, pain, uh, but I don't know. Um, I, people ask that a lot, and I should look into it, but, uh, but I haven't. <laughs> I do know, however, that... Um, People do use, for example, cold applications, either devices or cold towels around the neck for dealing with the heat. So if you're cooling the neck, you're cooling the blood flow that's going up to the brain. Your thermostat, your body's thermostat is in the brain. And it's very close to where that blood is entering the brain. So by cooling the neck, it's like putting a wet washcloth on your thermostat at home. So if you want to cool your house, are you going to put a cold compress on the thermostat? So what this does is it makes you feel good. You feel cool because you've cooled the thermostat. But it also can be shutting off your heat loss because you've exceeded the set point of the thermostat. Mm. Uh, of course, it, if the brain is at danger of hyperthermia, it's, it's very important to, to uh, protect the brain. Okay, mm. so yes, it can have a real important application, but just for thermal comfort, uh, it, it's not going to, to uh, decrease your core body temperature because you may actually mm. be increasing the core body temperature by shutting off the heat loss while the heat's still coming out of the large dynamic muscles. So it could be dangerous for someone who's perhaps in the middle of a workout and they put a cold towel on their neck and they feel cooler and then they when they feel cooler they work harder and then they end up increasing their body temperature because of yeah. that. Hmm. The other thing that uh, following up on that that we've done is the standard of care for treating a patient that's hyperthermic, let's say emergency workers are called out, someone has gone down uh, due to hyperthermia. And the standard of care is to put cold compresses in the axilla, the armpits, mm. and the neck, okay? So what we've shown is that if we take those exact same compresses, and instead we put them on the palms, the soles, and the face, we get a almost doubling of the rate of recovery. So the intent of the standard of care is to get cold compresses closer to the major 
vessels, the major arteries and veins, okay? But if your car is overheating and you have a hose, are you going to spray that hose on the tubes coming in and out of the radiator or are you going to spray the radiator? <laughs> so but we, we think that by putting those cold compresses on the heat exchange surfaces, uh, we are getting better heat extraction than if we just apply them close to the major uh, blood vessels. Why is that not um, standard practice in hospitals yet? Uh, well, it takes a long time for new information to be mm. accepted and disseminated. Mm. So I bet 99% of uh, emergency workers don't even know about that study. Mm. Sure. Um, and moving on to maybe the opposite end of the spectrum, what, what benefits does heat play? Do saunas have um, benefits, apart from I've heard that it makes your skin glow? Does it have any other physiological benefits? Well, it certainly causes relaxation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, not the sauna necessarily, but uh, warm up exercises. Of course, you could, I guess, use a sauna in, in that application as well. But in most cases, it's exercise. Uh, and it has the name warm up. But probably the major benefit is the increased flexibility of the muscles. You're loosening up the muscles. You're getting them ready to uh, face a major challenge. But also the warm-up probably increases the efficiency of the muscles too. Because as I said before, when you're just at rest, unless you're in a very warm environment, most of your peripheral tissues are not at 37 degrees. They're lower. So if you measure the temperature of your distal part of your arm, it's not going to be at 37 degrees if you're sitting there at your desk. It's going to be maybe 35. Uh, so the enzymes that are responsible for metabolism of the muscle, providing the fuel, uh, at least we know one of those enzymes is temperature sensitive. So up until 37 or 37.5, it increases its efficiency. It increases its activity. But then rapidly, when you get above that into 38 and so forth, it inactivates. It gradually inactivates. So, you know, it's a distributed phenomenon. So all the molecules don't, inactiv it don't inactivate at the same temperature, but it loses overall efficiency. So you have a very steep and sharp curve for maximum muscle efficiency. And I mean, the get you closer to that peak or and maybe exceed it so after a, an extended uh extended stay in the sauna you're probably not going to do your maximum uh, one rep max right have you done is there any work being done at the moment with regards to disease and temperature with cooling core body temperature and stuff like yes, that the very important one is multiple sclerosis mm -hmm. Um, individuals with multiple sclerosis see a big increase, uh, exacerbation of their symptoms. So if their symptom is lack of mobility, they can become incapable of walking. If their symptom is vision, they may lose their vision uh, with a rise in temperature. 
So what we found for MS patients is that uh, if we give them the ability to dump heat through the palm of the hand, uh, they can prevent, they can avoid that exacerbation of their symptoms. So in one case, uh, a woman who uh, was, was essentially housebound during the summer, I mean, she had to stay in an air-conditioned place. Uh, once she had access to a, a Palmer cooling device, she was back out playing golf in the summer. Uh, and we've seen that in a number of cases where individuals have essentially uh, had an increase, an, an improvement in their, uh, in their standard of living by being able to prevent the exacerbation of the MS symptoms. We had an interesting case very recently, and this was a young woman, very physically fit, who had a strong workout program, and she got multiple sclerosis. And what she found was that her workout capacity was limited because she could no longer sweat. Wow. Sweating, of course, is an important means of losing body heat. So with Palmer cooling, <laughs> this sounds absolutely backwards, but with Palmer cooling, she regained the ability to sweat. So she could work out, but she could sweat. <laughs> and, and, and if you think about it, the sweating is controlled by nerves of the autonomic nervous system. And in this particular case, the MS was probably influencing the transmission in those particular uh, nerves. So by uh, taking away the heat, she <laughs> was once again able to activate her sweat glands through those nerves. Wow, that's interesting. Um, and you've mentioned you mentioned before that you you do a lot of research with regards to sleep. Um, I realize that we I want to be sympathetic with your time, so we can't get too deep into the weeds of that. That would maybe require another hour of conversation. But um, what benefits can cold have with regards to sleep? Is it better to stay in a cool room or is it better to be warm? Better to be cool. Hmm. And there's a very simple reason for that. When you go to sleep, your thermostat is set to a lower level, the thermostat in your brain, okay? So you may get ready for bed in a, in a, in a winter uh, environment, for example, and, and you pull up all sorts of covers uh, uh, and you, you make yourself feel really comfy and warm and you fall asleep and 10, 15 minutes later, you wake up sweating. And that's because at the onset of sleep, your thermostat has decreased its setting. Now, if you're in a warm room, there's not much you can do about that. But if you're in a cool room, what do you do? You stick out your arms, you stick out your feet, okay? So if you're in a cool room, you can more easily adjust to the change in the uh, set point of your thermostat. Right. And is there any other recommendations out with temperature that you would give to someone who's maybe struggling to um, either fall asleep or to stay asleep or to just improve their sleep quality, I suppose? Um, this is a huge concern in sleep medicine, how to treat insomnia. Mm -hmm. And uh, historically, it's been treated predominantly pharmacologically. 
uh, early on, a huge problem with the hypnotics, drugs that induce sleep, was dependency. You would become uh, used to the drug and you'd have to take more, and you have to take more. Now, there are a number of hypnotics now that don't have uh, that severe problem uh, with uh, dependency. But most, I'm not, a, I'm not a physician, but most sleep medicine physicians will now say, we preferably get, will, will give you cognitive behavioral therapy. So there are many things you can do to decrease insomnia, to improve your sleep without taking drugs. Uh, and there are simple things. Have a regular bedtime. Don't work right up until the time you're going to sleep. Take some time to relax. Don't uh, use computer terminals or, or TVs uh, up until the time you go to sleep because what they do is, uh, unless you have a filter on your computer screen, it gives you a lot of blue light. And what blue light does is it alters your circadian clock, makes it more difficult to fall asleep. So there are all sorts of behavioral things which we just call sleep hygiene, which for most people dramatically improves their ability to sleep. Now, what some physicians will do is they will make maybe co-treat with cognitive behavioral therapy and low doses of hypnotics, and then eventually gradually withdraw the, the hypnotics. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I guess the, it's fair to say the field of sleep medicine is now favoring uh, safer behavioral therapies rather than pharmacological therapies. That sounds like a good thing to me. Um, and so just lastly, is there anything that we haven't covered with regards to temperature regulation or sleep that you're researching now or that you think people should know about? Well, a big one is the role of sleep in learning and memory. So okay. it, it, it is very important to have nightly amounts of adequate sleep. Uh, and many people these days are working on uh, sleep restrictions during the week. Uh, during the week, they may work very hard right up until beyond their bedtime and then get up really early to, to get to school, to get the commute train or what have you. And then they say, well, it doesn't matter because I'll catch up on the weekend. I'll sleep in in the weekend. Well, if you sleep in on the weekend, if you can sleep in on the weekend, that means you're not getting enough sleep during the week, okay? And it's, it's sleep every single night that's important. If you sleep restrict someone, the ability to form long-term memories, the ability to, uh, to use that information creatively, that's limited. Uh, so not only do you the following day have uh, sleepiness, uh, but you just have not benefited from your experience the day before. If you're a student, the worst thing you can do for an exam is to pull an all-nighter. You're, you're just not going to function well uh, that next day. So sure, if you miss some sleep one night, you will catch up the next night. It's like uh, maintaining a bank balance, but you don't get the same benefit in terms of your acquisition of new information and the processing and consolidation of that information uh, than you would if you have uh, adequate sleep every night. Mm. 
It's, it's funny that you have, there's so many people who want to improve their cognitive cognitive performance and they sometimes turn to nootropics or they think of any other supplementation or diet and yet they're only getting five or six hours sleep and it's like if you just get more sleep more consistent sleep that's almost a nootropic in itself yeah the other thing that's important is that many many people are suffering from obstructive sleep apnea uh, anyone mm -hmm. who scores is right. has obstructive sleep apnea and they may feel as if they sleep perfectly well, but what their sleep is, is fragmented. So they may wake up 200 times a night. They don't know it, but they will come back up to a level of wakefulness and before going back to sleep. And what that does is it fragments sleep and sleep fragmentation completely destroys the process of memory consolidation. So they have cognitive impairment. Uh, during their daytime activities. So it's very important if you have obstructive sleep apnea to get it treated. Uh, and it improves many aspects of your life. Most people who have obstructive sleep apnea and they come to seek help from a sleep physician, they don't complain about insomnia. They complain about being sleepy during the day. Mm. And that's the response to not having adequate sleep during the night. Mm. Well, um, Craig, I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your, I imagine, very busy schedule. Um, is there anywhere people can go to step to date with the research you're doing and to step to date with, obviously, you've mentioned the cool mitt, so I'll link all of that in the show notes. Um, uh, well, I do have not a, I don't have a fancy website. I've never done that. But uh, if you go to the Stanford a university website, there are profiles of faculty which list their interests and their, uh, their work, uh, their publications that you can then uh, look up. Sure. Well, okay. um, thank you again for taking the time. Um, I'm always amazed at the amount of people that um, actually say yes um, to like giving up an hour of their day. It's, it's, it's very, it's incredible. So yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's really fun to be able to share uh, the excitement of research and discovery with the public. Well, Thanks. I hope I hope people um, take something from this conversation and apply it to their lives because I think every, everything you've mentioned about um, sleep and temperature regulation can massively improve people's lives and so many people don't know anything about it. So um, yeah, thank you for giving out your knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> right guys, so that's the end of episode 25. Thank you to Dr. Craig Heller for taking the time and thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Um, I think Dr. Craig Heller is incredibly interesting and I hope you take some of his knowledge and apply it to your life. It genuinely can make your life better and make a massive difference. Like I said at the start, if you want to stay up to date with everything concerning the podcast, the Struggle for Meaning newsletter and all of my other work, you can follow my social media channels. They're all linked below. You can also watch the podcast on my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. And again, thank you so much for listening. That's amazing just knowing that people are listening to the podcast. I hope you get something out of it. I hope you get as much out of it as I do because I get so much out of all these conversations that I'm having. And stay tuned for episode 26 of the In Context podcast. I've already got my guests secured. So if you want to know who that is, follow my social media channels and you can find out there early before the podcast is even live. But thank you again for listening and take care.